I'm going to read briefly uh, from Genesis 25. We've uh, we've had some special sermons, or we did have the Thanksgiving sermon, but we've had some uh, non-Genesis sermons in the past few weeks. So I know it feels like we've been in Genesis 5 for like 25 for five or six weeks now. But really, we've only had, I think, two sermons out of Genesis 25. I'm going to read the last few verses, and we're going to jump to Hebrews 12, and you will see why we're jumping to Hebrews 12. We're going to do something very similar to what we did when we covered the birth of Jacob and Esau. And I said that we need to ask ourselves the question, is the birth of Jacob and Esau mentioned anywhere else in Scripture to kind of explain something and help us understand something. So we ended up in Romans 9 uh, for two sermons as well. We're going to ask that same question, but we're going to ask it about Esau specifically here. And we're asking the question, is there anywhere else in Scripture that brings up Esau selling his birthright for some stew? And the answer is yes, it comes up in Hebrews 12. And so that's why we're going to read briefly and we're going to jump right to Hebrews 12 because... My prayer and my aim with this sermon is that we will deeply consider, that we will contemplate, but we'll also understand just how easy it is to proverbially, not literally, sell our birthright for some stew. Just as Esau did. So I'm going to read Genesis 25, verses 29 through 34, and then I will meet you in Hebrews 12. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And so, excuse me, we may read that and say, well, he gave up his birthright. How is that that despising his birthright, hating his birthright? You got to understand a birthright is simply something that you are, it is yours by birth. Esau is the firstborn son, and and in those days, everything, the inheritance. But specifically, what we're going to look at today is the the promises of God to Abraham that were then passed from Abraham to Isaac, that that then, naturally speaking, should have passed from Isaac to Esau. Esau said... Who cares about that? I just want some food. You say, Caleb, that's a real crass and and simplistic way of wording it. Well, that is exactly what happened. He was exhausted. He was hungry. And what did he give up just because he was hungry? His birthright. And specifically, what we're looking at today is he gave up the promises and the inheritance of God for some food. Try. And the reason that I say try is I think, and I I actually hope and I pray at this point, that the longer that we consider that, 
that the harder it will be for us to actually comprehend what took place. That for some food, Esau gave up his birthright. I hope that the more we contemplate that, the more we come to understand that is almost so foolish, I can't even begin to comprehend the, the simplicity of mind that went into that decision. Oh, I'm hungry, so I would rather have a bowl of stew right now than to receive the promises and the inheritance of God later. So, are y'all with me so far? When we read this, I don't want y'all just to think, yeah, I've heard this a million times before. I know that Esau gave up his birthright for some stew. And yeah, that was a pretty, you know, he was a knucklehead for doing that. But is it really that big of a deal? I would say, yes, it is, it is the biggest of deals. And if we, if we are not diligent, if we are not intentional to stay focused upon Christ, to stay focused upon the promises of God, then we will, again, not literally, but we will sell our proverbial birthright for some stew. For some immediate gratification. So with that being said, we go to Hebrews 12. We read the first two verses for our scripture reading earlier. I'm going to pick it up in verse 3. I'm going to read a, a pretty good chunk of verses and then we'll we'll start to unpack it once we get to the verse considering Esau. But what I do want to say is, by way of setting this in its context, these are verses written to believers not to grow weary, not to give up as we fight sin, as we endure trials and tribulations. The context of these verses in, in Hebrews 12 is exactly what we read in those first two verses. Look to Christ. As you wage war against sin, as you endure trials, as you are tempted to give up on the faith, as you are tempted to turn away from Christ, look to Christ and consider what was done. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, an idea that I want to go ahead and put in your head, and then we'll start reading in verse 3. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. In its immediate context, there was no joy in the cross as far as physically. As far as materially, there was no joy. There was no peace in the cross. There was no ease. There was no comfort in enduring the cross. You're talking about being beaten, tortured, having your beard pulled out, being spat upon, crown of thorns, bones being out of joint, not being able to breathe. But it says for the joy set before Him. Well, what joy is there in the cross? It's what is beyond the cross. What was accomplished on the cross? Sin was defeated. The serpent's head was crushed. What was accomplished in the resurrection three days later? Death was defeated. Sin and death fully defeated. The wrath of God satisfied for the sins of His people. God's people saved. 
God's people redeemed. How? Through the blood of the cross. So, for something that was not immediate, but for something that was in the future, Christ endured. You could say the opposite of what Esau did. Esau despised something that was future. Esau despised something that was yet to come because he wanted something immediate. He wanted something right now. So, one way to look at this is to say, Jesus is a greater Esau. To fine-tune that a bit, because you would say, well, we don't even consider Esau like a giant of the faith or anything, so what does that mean, Jesus is the greater Esau? Think of it this way. Jesus is a greater firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. Jesus is to inherit all creation. Jesus now has all authority in heaven and on earth. And Jesus did not turn away from that promise. Jesus did not turn away from that guarantee for immediate satisfaction. For immediate pleasure. Another way that we know that this is true is Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And what was Jesus tempted to do in the wilderness? Turn those stones to bread. We know that you're hungry. Turn those stones to bread. He had been fasting for 40 days. You better believe he was hungry. And what did Satan tempt him to do? Turn those stones to bread. Again, he's the better Esau. He's the better firstborn. What was Esau's whole thing? I'm exhausted. What good is a birthright to me? I want food. I want sustenance. Give me the stew. When Jesus was tempted to take his eyes off of the Father's will and have some food, what was his response? Man will not live by bread alone. Satan tempted Jesus by saying, do this. And I will give you all of these things. I will give you the world. I will give you these treasures. And yet Jesus did not take His eyes off of the Father's will while He was sent. He endured. So Jesus is the greater Esau. Jesus is the greater firstborn, if you will. So, verse 3 of Hebrews 12, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Esau said, I'm exhausted. I actually do want you to either raise your hand, or give me a head nod, or you can even stand up and testify if you want to. I know we ain't that kind of church, and I said that just to see how many people were awake. I had two people kind of look up like, what did he just say? Stand up and testify. How many of you since you have been a Christian? And I want you to be, listen, do not raise your hand or nod your head because you think it's what I want to hear. I want you to take a moment to think about it. Give me an honest answer. Because we don't often ask questions like this. How many of you have become weary or faint hearted in your life as a Christian before? Okay, 
Here's where I say, be honest with me. How many of us would admit that there have been times where we have become so weary and so exhausted that the sinful thought has crossed our mind, it would honestly be easier if I didn't have to worry about all this Christian stuff. It would be easier if I didn't have to worry about pleasing God and if I could just do my own thing. Now, I'll raise both my hands. Because the bottom line is, we've all been there, whether you do want to raise your hand or not. We've been there. There are times where we are tempted in such a way that the the thought crosses our minds, it would be better if I didn't know what I know. Like if I didn't know all this stuff about God and that we need to live for His glory and we need to please Him. It would, I almost feel like it would be so much easier if I could just go do what I wanted to do, fix my problems the way that I want to fix them, do the stuff that I want to do, have the life that I want to have. Stuff would be easier and better if I didn't know the truth about Christianity, about the faith. And for those of us who have been there and are not too proud to say, I've been there, consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. One of the reasons that Christ endured all that He endured and went through everything that He went through is so that we could look at that example and say, I have no need to grow weary. How foolish of me to grow to grow so weary and faint-hearted that I have all sorts of doubtful, faithless thoughts that enter my head. Christ Himself endured from sinners such hostility so that you, which is me and you, so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. One way I like to look at this, and this might not be you, and that's fine. But if if you resonate with this, we know why we resonate with this. I look at verses like this, and, and, and really what I tell myself is, you know, sometimes we need to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, man up, grow up, be an adult. Stop being a whiny little baby. Jesus had his beard tore out of his face. He was spit on. He was spit on by people that he brought into existence. He was beaten. He had a crown of thorns beat into his head. He had nails driven through his hand and his feet. And we get upset. We get weary and faint hearted because, oh, there's some people that made fun of me. Like, we, we get upset or we get weary and faint heart and say, well, I'm not, my job's not going as well as I want it to go. And we've got, like, you know, I, I've got some relationships where stuff is, we're struggling in the relationships. And I, Now, hear me out. I'm not saying this in an effort to make light of those things. I understand that in the moment, in the moment, all of those things are really big deals. What I'm saying is sometimes we need to stay, take a step back Look at ourselves in the mirror. Consider Christ and say, okay, it's time to grow up a little bit. 
Uh, let's get real. What I'm going through right now is nothing compared to what Christ can do. And furthermore, beyond that, what I'm going through right now, I have the promise of God that He's using this trial, He's using this hardship to make me more like Christ. And I'm not going to be made to look more like Christ as long as I'm sitting here wallowing in my self-pity and saying, woe is me. I need to grow up a little bit and look to Christ so that I don't get weary and faint-hearted. I need to consider what Christ endured for our salvation. Now, if that doesn't help you, if your mind doesn't work like that, I'm sorry, I don't have another example at this point in time. So we're going to pick up in verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And at this point in time, the author of Hebrews I think it's Paul. But the author of Hebrews brings in the illustration of parenting. I mentioned this last week or the or two weeks ago. And it's an interesting concept. Sometimes when we're going through a difficult time, and we may honestly think to ourselves, is God like is God reprimanding me for something? Is God rebuking me for something? We're tempted in those moments to be like, oh. I messed up again. But honestly, if we were to really contemplate that and think, okay, is God rebuking me? Is God disciplining me? Is God correcting me? If the answer is yes, we ought to rejoice. We should say, okay, well, I do. Obviously, I need to repent or ask forgiveness for a sin, like why God is reprimanding me or, or, or rebuking me. But the fact that God rebukes and the fact that God disciplines is evidence that we do actually belong to Him. Praise God. Anybody who who ever gets left to their own devices to just go and build the life they want to build, to live the life they want to live, anybody who is able to, to taste the fruits of their own labor and God doesn't intervene and God doesn't bring them to their knees, that's a surefire sign they are not His. So in those moments when God breaks us, you better believe we have a high reason to rejoice and to praise God. Because God only disciplines, rebukes, you throw in any word, God only breaks down, God only corrects His children. So in those moments where we may feel like God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to do? Those are the very moments where we should be, thank you, God. This evidence, the fact that I'm going through a trial right now, the fact that I'm hurt right now, the fact that you're breaking me over a sin right now, you're actually testifying to me that I am yours and you are disciplining me as a child. Think about that. Many of us have children. Some of us have children that have to leave the service because they scream. Not naming names, you're a preacher. Okay? <clears throat> but using that as the example, as our children grow, 
Or some of y'all, some of y'all might think, well, we've wondered about this, but thank you for clarifying it. Do, do me and Rose, do me and Rose, do me and Kristen raise Rose in a way where we tell Rose like, it's okay to scream whenever you want. Like you can just scream bloody murder wherever you are at any time. No, what if she shrieks and squeals at home? There's going to be some disciplinary action. Now that's a small thing. Think about when the children get older. Those of you who you've already raised your children. They're raised and out of the home. So you have to think backwards in times and you think, okay, well, when they were six, seven, eight, when they were teenagers, when they were this. Children try to do things in their own way or children's might, children might try to do things that they don't know any better. They don't know it's, it's not for their own good. And so mom and daddy might have to step in and say, hey, I know you think that's a good idea, but it's not a good idea. Like we're going to train you, make a better decision. That's discipline. Discipline isn't just like getting a whooping, right? Discipline is, we're going to teach you discipline in life. Work ethic is a discipline, right? But if a, if a parent loves their child, is there going to be some correction and discipline involved? I got two people, not y'all. We wait. I know there's some cute babies around here. I know that your preacher is not as cute as the cute babies. If a parent loves their child, is there going to be some correction and discipline involved? Okay. If God loves us, don't you think there's going to be some correction and discipline involved? Go back to the earthly example. If there are parents that we know of that they don't take care of their kids, that they do let their children just do whatever they want, fend for themselves, figure it out on their own, we would say, well, it's almost like those parents don't care about their kids. To use a different example, if we were to travel to a different state and walk up to a random couple on the street and say, hey, y'all know that Rose was screaming in church last Sunday. Why didn't y'all do anything about that? Well, number one, they're going to say, who is Rose? What church do you go to? And I've got no idea what you're talking about. Because that's not my kid. You discipline your children. You correct and discipline your children. That family would also might tell you, we've got kids of our own and we're trying to teach them. We don't have time to teach somebody else's kids. And all of that to say, when we read this, God disciplines us as sons, daughters, as His children. Our hearts should leap for joy. No discipline doesn't feel good for the moment. There's not a one of us who would say, you know, some of my favorite times growing up is when Daddy sent me to my room and told me to think about what you've done because I knew that in a few minutes He'd come in there with a belt and whip me. I love those moments. Ain't a one of us. Or you go back even further, those of you who had to go pick your own switch off the tree or something like that. I highly doubt those were enjoyable moments. But here's what happens. Across the board, I have never met any adult of any age that said, when I think back on my childhood, I'm really disappointed that my parents disciplined me. If there's one thing I could change about my childhood, I wish I could go back and have parents who didn't discipline me. I've never met an adult who says that. And if they do say that, they're lying through their teeth. Or either... They're, they're definitely not living the type of life they need to be living. 
across the board. You ask, uh, if you meet somebody who says, you know what, I, lo- I love my parents. I'm so thankful to God for my parents. And if you were to ask them, what are some things about your parents that you're thankful for? Somewhere in that list of stuff, they're going to say, I'm thankful that I had parents who taught me right from wrong and weren't scared to actually discipline me. And weren't scared to actually really teach me the difference between right and wrong. And they sat down and they would talk to me. And they would explain to me, this is why this is right. And this is why this is wrong. You've never met anybody who regrets having parents like that. Why? Because it's a good thing. And we are told that God disciplines those whom He loves. Last week, the whole sermon... Point after point after point. Steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. What does He do for those that He loves? He disciplines them. I know I'm hammering this point, but it's going to come into play. Think back when you were growing up. If you ever have, if you ever had a pocket of your childhood, or maybe it was an extended pocket of your childhood, but I'm not asking for confessions. But if you had a pocket of your childhood where you were receiving more discipline than you typically got, like maybe you were just making a series of bad decisions and it just seemed like every single day I'm getting in trouble about something or every single day I'm having to be corrected about something. As a child growing up, that can become pretty exhausting, right? If you feel like you're always in trouble. If you feel like you're constantly having to be corrected. And and here I'm talking about you have legitimately done something wrong. It almost becomes like a I almost feel like I'm at war with my parents. Like, I want to do it this way. They want me to do it that way. And we're just, we're going back and forth. And it gets exhausting. Especially as you get older and you're nearing the point where you might be going off to college and you might be learning how to be an adult. And But mom and dad are still helping discipline and teach and correct. And it can become wearisome. Like you're always at odds with mom and dad and you're exhausted. As God corrects us, as God disciplines us, there may be times, here we are again, there may be times we think, I wish I could just go do what I wanted to do and like not feel bad about it. Like I wish I could go do something, but the fact that I know that God exists and the fact that I have faith in Jesus Christ, like I can't go do that thing because I know that later I'm going to feel miserable. I'm going to be miserable because I know that that thing's a sin, but I almost wish that I could just go do it and not care about it. Because I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted. I just feel like nothing's been going right. I don't feel happy. I don't feel joyful. And I just want something to change. I wish I could go out and live a different life. But I know that I'd end up miserable because I know that God really is real. And so, and it's just like, what are we here for? What do you do in those moments? Do you just give up and walk away? Or do you look to Christ and say, all that He endured, all that He went through. It is not for me to grow weary and faint-hearted. God is making me more like Christ. It would not be better if we did not have the discipline of the Lord. It would not be easier if we did not have the discipline of the Lord. It would be far worse and it would be detrimental it would mean that we did not belong to Him if we did not have the discipline of the Lord. 
Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Your parents growing up, or if you had a different situation, whoever raised you growing up, because they were only human as well, they made mistakes in their discipline. Christian and I, we've made mistakes in how we discipline our children. We do what we think is best, what seems best. Think about this. God never makes an error with His discipline. God never misses the mark with His correction. Whew. I wish we could pull that off as parents. That would be wonderful. We've won. We've only got three years experience. And in three years, the amount of mistakes that we've made could probably fill this room. God is perfect with His discipline. God is perfect with His correction. And what does it produce? Holiness. And isn't that interesting? In those moments where we might feel like, oh, I just, I just want to be done. I want to go do that thing that we're pursuing or that thing that we wish we could do without feeling conviction about it. At the end of the day, every single time, it's an unholy thing. I wish I could just tell that person off. I wish I could tell them how I felt, but I know it's not the right thing to do. But oh, I wish I could just unleash on them. It's an unholy thing. Oh, I wish that person would just get what was coming to them. I wish that some way, somehow, the universe would just make something bad happen to that person. Unholy. (laughs) For once, I just wish things would go my way. I wish I would have gotten that promotion at work. But I never get anything. And I wish that just something would fall my way and nothing ever seems to go right. Well, that's unholy. Well, Caleb, how is that unholy? Sometimes I feel like things aren't going my way. Why are you not content with what Christ has given you? That's unholy. That is profane. To complain against the hand of God. What does His discipline produce? Holiness. Makes us more like Christ. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. And all God's people said, Amen. You think back to all those whippings you got. You think back to all the punishment you got. It doesn't feel good. It is painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here's another aspect. Thinking about parenting. You yourself, when you were a child, when you fought back against your parents and how they were trying to discipline you and how they were trying to teach you, did it make things better or worse? Somebody be bold enough to answer out loud. Worse. Across the board. Right? When raising your own children... Have you ever thought, if they would just listen to what I'm telling them, if they would just be obedient, like things would be better, not just for me because I want them to listen, but for their own sake, things would be better if they would just be trained by what I'm teaching them. And in those moments, I'm laughing because me and Kristen have had some conversations sometimes, that if we, were, if we would stop and think, because we get frustrated, I have taught them this thing, we've talked about this a million times, and we think... 
How many times has God patiently taught us the same lesson that He's taught us a million times already? But when it finally clicks, when your child does something that in your mind you know that's something we've been teaching them and they just did it. Whoa! When a child actually is trained by that discipline, what's the result? There's peace in the home. But when we're talking with God, there's there's the peaceful fruit of righteousness, holiness. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone for the holiness and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So God's discipline produces holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God produces the very thing that will ultimately result in us being with Him forever in glory. Praise God and Amen. Holiness. Verse 15, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. You say, finally, we've been waiting this whole sermon. You finally got back to Esau. Yeah, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. And he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He wanted things to be made right, he wanted the blessing. He was rejected. There was nothing. Even though he saw it with tears, there was nothing. And the point of this is, do not be like Esau. No matter how tired you get, no matter how exhausted you get, no matter how weary or faint-hearted you get, do not be like Esau. Do not sell your birthright for a meal. You say, well, how do we have a birthright? What have we inherited through Christ? Eternal life. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We haven't received the fullness of that yet. It is yet future. We have the promises of God. Just like the promises given to Abraham. Given to Isaac. Given to Jacob instead of Esau. God gave His promises to Abraham, to Isaac. He reiterated them in Jacob. Not Esau. Why? Esau wanted the meal. He thought it was more important. The promises of God to Abraham were what? I will make of you a great nation. You'll be the father of a great nation. Your descendants will outnumber the stars and the sand. And... In you shall all the nations be blessed. That. That is the birthright. That is the promise. That Esau said, Who cares about that? I want a meal. We as believers, we are promised eternal life. 
We are promised that Christ has gone on ahead of us to prepare a place for us. He's coming back. We are told that God works all things together for our good. We are told that we can rejoice in every trial and tribulation because God is working all things together for good and He is shaping us into the image of Christ. We are given these promises. We are told that we should count it all joy. We are told that <laughs> that God is producing within us that image of Christ and molding us into the image of Christ. God is producing holiness within us. We are told that we can rejoice in suffering. But there are times that we really start to doubt those promises. Is it really good for me to be going through this stuff? Is it really good for us to be in this place right now? Is it really good that we're struggling financially? Is it really good that that our family's not getting along right now? Is it really good that we can't do this? And Is it really good that, that I can't get a new job and I'm stuck at this job that I don't like? Is it good? Is it, am I really supposed to rejoice in all of this? And we start to doubt and we start to question. And here's the thing. If we want to exchange the promises of God for worldly pleasure, worldly pleasure and worldly satisfaction will be right there waiting on us. You won't, you won't leave empty handed. If you're looking for stew, you'll find stew. If you're looking for guilty pleasure, you'll find guilty pleasure if you look for it in the world. If you're looking for money, you'll find it. If you're looking for prestige, you'll find it. See, this is another thing. We don't often talk about this as Christians. The bottom line is this. For the people who profess to be Christian and they're saying that they're living for the Lord and they just get tired of it and they say, well, we want to go, we want to go find something else. We want to, we want to trade it in for something else. It will work. Now, it won't work in the long run. They'll be separated from God. But it will work in the immediate. It'll work. Satan will be happy to give them something in the immediate that satiates their desire. And that satisfies them. If all of us, if all of us said, we want, to, we want to spend the rest of our lives working for a good, comfortable life here. You could do it. We still live in a world... As it stands right now, if you go out and you work hard and you manage your money well, you will be able to build for yourself using that language. Of course, we know all things come from God. But using this language, you'll be able to build for yourself a comfortable life. Things will be good. Your bills will be paid. And when you when you pass, you'll have something to give your children. If we wanted to exhaust all of our faculties on living a good life, there's so much I want to do. I want to travel. Uh, there, there's places in the world I want to see. There's places that I want to eat. You know, I follow these places on Instagram and stuff like that. There's restaurants all over the world. I want to go to those restaurants and I want to eat. I don't think there's anything wrong with traveling. I don't think there's anything wrong with eating good food. There's, there's, there's just stuff that I want to do. And I, I'm going to spend my life living a good life. You could do it. A lot of people would just say... I just want to be comfortable. 
I don't want a million dollars. I don't want multi-millions. I just want to be comfortable. Well, pursuing a life of comfort and ease. What well, we have to give up for that. And the reason that I'm using these as examples, can I can I can tell either either the looks on y'all's faces or my stomach just growled and I'm really ready to go, or you're kind of wondering. There's nothing wrong with those examples. Those don't sound like sinful examples. Why did Caleb use those as examples? It's not a sin to eat stew. It's not a sin to have a bowl of soup, y'all. But for Esau, in this case, it really meant everything. It's not a sin to eat a bowl of stew. But it is a sin to value stew more than the promises of God. It's not a sin to have what people would call a comfortable life here on this earth. If you say, well, I know that there's people out there that, that they, they wish they could have the house that we have. They wish they could have the amount of money in the bank that we have. Like, There's nothing sinful about having a house, having cars, having money. That's not sinful. But prizing those things, esteeming those things over God and over the promises of God is unholy and sinful. And if we who profess to be Christians and profess to live for the glory of God, if we really are just living our lives Pursuing what we want. Trying to have a good life here. You can rest assured. We're pursuing an unholy thing. Eating soup in and of itself is not sinful. But esteeming that over the birthright. Is. And we live in a world today. Where so much is promoted about self. And what you need right now. Do what makes you happy. Protect. Protect your peace. You need to make sure that you are happy. And really, if I can make kind of a broad connection here, that's really all Esau was after. I'm tired and I'm hungry. Whatever I have to do to get food in my belly right now, I'm going to do it. I don't care what the cost is. I just want to be satisfied. And so many people live their lives with that mindset. I need to be satisfied. I want to be happy. I want to feel good. Whatever I've got to do to feel good. Whatever I've got to do to feel happy. Tell me where to sign up and I'll do it. I'll give up anything. We need to be very sure on lots of things. But we need to be very sure on this one thing as Christians. If we profess the name of Christ. There is one. There is one. Full, complete, total reason why we exist. For His glory. That's it. To glorify Him. To make much of Him. To make much of His name. Will will we be tempted to pursue earthly things? Will we be tempted to fix ourselves a big heaping bowl of stew? Yeah. Will we sometimes partake of what the world has to offer? Yes. But you can rest assured, the end result will always lead to remorse, pain, 
Heartache. Esau sold his birthright. That was a grave sin. All of us, if we were honest, we'd say we have committed many, many, many grave sins. Only Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ has made atonement for the sins of all who believe. The only hope for our sins to be covered, to be washed away, is through Jesus Christ. And that's why this selling of the birthright is so important. In selling the birthright, you could say Esau was turning his back on the promises of God. Turning his back on God. Selling the birthright. If anyone, if anyone turns away from Christ and looks for other answers, for other avenues, there will be no hope of repentance later. The same as Esau. He desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. If we reject Christ, if we turn away from God and all of the promises, the promises which are yes in Jesus, if we turn away from those things, then when the day comes that we actually desire a chance to repent, there won't be one. Say, how does that tie in with everything we've talked about thus far? If you are weary, if you are faint-hearted, if you're weary and faint-hearted right now, and, and you would not out loud, but you're thinking, man, you know, if I'm being honest right now, I've been going through the thick of it, and it's just like, I almost wish life was easier, and I wish it was easier to be a Christian. I wish I didn't have to worry about all this stuff, and I'm just, I'm so beat down, and I'm so worn down. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And consider the promises of God that whatever you're going through right now, even in the midst of your weariness, even in the midst of your faint-heartedness, whatever you're going through right now is for your good. God is making you more like Christ. The Father is making you more like the Son. What does the verse say? It says, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Instead of being weary and faint hearted, understand reality. The reality is, God didn't bring these things into our lives to break us down, to wear us out, so where we feel like we have no hope. God brings trials and tribulations into our lives so that we understand our true hope with greater clarity. Our hope isn't in this world. Our hope isn't in an easier life. Our hope is not in the comforts of this world. Our hope is in Christ. Look to Him. Our comfort is in Christ. Our peace is in Christ. Our joy is in Christ. Look to no other source. Look to no other place than Christ. And be strengthened. Do not be like Esau. Who said, I'm exhausted. I just want something to satisfy me. Because if you do that. You and I won't leave empty handed. There will be something that we place in our hands. Or something that we place in our belly. That feels satisfying. That feels good. 
And later when that pain comes and we realize the depth of our decision, there will be pain. Praise be to God that in those moments, for those of us who truly belong to God, we have an advocate with the Father. And there is forgiveness of those sins. One last thing that I want to mention specifically that's really, I'll be honest, this is more of a cultural commentary that I'm going to tag on to this sermon here. But the reason that I want to bring this up is because I hear a lot of professing Christians use slogans like this or share slogans like this on on social media and other places like that. We live in a world, as I mentioned earlier, it's all about self. Protect yourself. Protect your peace. Protect your happiness. Do whatever you've got to do to make sure that you're okay. Christian, Christian, we need to understand God has never called us to live our lives for ourselves and protecting ourselves and making sure that we're happy. In fact, He's called us to the opposite. Those who are called to follow Jesus Christ are called to do what? Die to self. To esteem others more highly than we esteem ourselves. The dead opposite of what the world will tell you. So I took the liberty of writing down some common quotes and slogans. These are not Christian slogans. Just in case there was any confusion. Always say, my peace is more important. Whenever you find yourself reacting to something that doesn't deserve your energy. Now, keep in mind, you might think, where is this guy? I'm not saying that y'all shared it or that I've heard y'all say these things. I'm just saying Christianity at large. I see slogans like this, sayings like this, passed around like hot candy. Always say, my peace is more important. Whenever you find yourself reacting to something that doesn't deserve your energy. The best way to protect your peace of mind and energy is by keeping a focus on what matters the most. You and your peace. Learn to be done. Not mad. Not bothered. Just done. Protect your peace at all costs. Respect yourself enough to say, I deserve peace. And walk away from people and things that keep you from attaining peace. Now, I also took the liberty of rewording that last one to make it something at least a little bit closer to what Christians should say. If we want to use slogans like this, we need to make sure that they're Christian slogans. So I reworded this one, and here's what I wrote. Know yourself enough to say, I deserve death. And walk away from people and things that keep you from being content in Christ. Now, when I said, and I'm not saying this to... Listen, we're all brothers and sisters here, so understand. When I said... Know yourself enough to say, I deserve death. I saw lots of eyes go, 
That statement should not take any Christian by surprise. And that's why I say, I'm not saying that to like come at you. I'm not trying to preach at you. I'm your brother in Christ here. And it is a basic Christian principle. The reason that the gospel is such good news is that every sinner deserves death. Every sinner deserves the wrath of a holy God. Are we sinners? Yeah. Now as believers we would say, well we're sinners saved by grace and God calls us saints. Amen to that. In our flesh, we're sinners. What does sin deserve? The wrath of God. The mindset of the Christian, every day when we wake up, we should think, I deserve death and here I am living another day. I'm thankful. I deserve the wrath of God and He's given me mercy and grace instead. I will live for Him. Know yourself enough to say, I deserve death. And walk away from people and things that keep you from being content in Christ. That's how we ought to live life. If Esau was content with God and the promises of God, he wouldn't have sold his birthright. If we were content in Christ, we wouldn't go out into the world looking for worldly satisfaction and worldly pleasures. So just as it said at the beginning of Hebrews 12 there, look to Christ, the author and finisher, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen those weak knees. Look to Christ. To fight sin is not easy. The call to die to self is literally deadly business. Being a Christian is a serious thing. And there are many times where we feel exhausted and we feel worn down. The only way to fight that is to look to Christ. Do not buy what the world sells you. The only way to truly have peace and joy and life is through Christ. May He be glorified. May He have the preeminence in all things. Let's close in order of prayer.